Welcome to the Wealth is in the Details podcast. In this podcast, financial planner Peter Raskin helps families and business owners understand and prepare for their wealth journey. Along the way, thoughtful and detailed planning can provide clarity and confidence as clients confront a multitude of financial decisions. Listen in as Peter shares stories and insight into people's wealth journeys. Now, let's get into today's podcast. Well, hello and welcome to this podcast. Peter Raskin is here with you. And uh, Peter, good to be with you on this. This is our first podcast together. I'm Patrice Sakura. Yeah, I'm very excited, Patrice. I, I was, you know, this is bittersweet for me. Um, Eric Johnson had had been our co-host for um, about 100 and, 104 episodes, I think, 105 episodes. And uh, he's off to, to do something different. We we mm-hmm. talked to him uh, last podcast. So we said good, our goodbyes. And uh, Patrice, I'm, I'm real excited to welcome you to uh, the Wealth is in the Details podcast. I look forward to doing many of them with you. Uh, Patrice, tell me, tell, tell Tell our listeners about yourself. All right. Well, first of all, I thought you were going to say you'd been with Eric for 104 years or so. Said, That's <laughs> a pretty long time. <laughs> right. It's good. It's still a good long time to have a great relationship. I have spent decades in radio. I love radio. I love the spoken word. Most of the time that I was in radio, which was <clears throat> several decades, let's just put it that way. I was at the Wall Street Journal Radio Network, where I was managing editor, and then spent some time at Bloomberg Radio. So lots of time around the Big Apple, New York City. And like I say, I just love radio. I love the spoken word. And by extension, you know, I love podcasting, too. So I'm really, really pleased to be here with you, Peter. I am, too. So thank you. All right. Now, I know you have a guest here who probably knows Boston inside and out. Larry DeCara. Larry, you're a lawyer. You've taught at Harvard, BU, UMass. You've also stepped into roles as consultant and lobbyist. Peter, tell us more about Larry. Yeah, so so I met Larry uh, probably 15, 18 years ago. Um, just I, I've been so lucky in in so many of my endeavors, and one of my endeavors on a regular basis is exercise. And so both Larry and I belong to a, uh, a health club in downtown Boston, and uh, that w- it was my cheers. It was my uh, you know the, the the rest the the bar where you walk in and everyone knows your name, and I think Larry feels the same way. Uh, just you you just knew a whole bunch of people, wonderful people from from the city of Boston, all all of us working downtown, just having a great time exercising and then then schmoozing. <laughs> we did a lot of that. And I met Larry and uh, he just has become a, a, a good friend and um, someone I admire. And it's about time I had Larry on the podcast. We had uh, lunch with some old alums from the health club uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to have our listeners uh, hear what Larry has to say, really mostly about the the city of Boston. And uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about development and and uh, Boston's history and compare it to today. So, Larry, welcome. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so Great much to for be joining here. me. You know, you've been around the city a lot as a lobbyist, as a professional. You you do a lot of real estate law, but you also were the uh, youngest elected uh, Boston city councilor ever. At age 22. 22, uh, six months, three days. Yeah. So congratulations on that. And then you you had a uh, a career on the Boston City Council, did that to, through 1981, and then actually ran for this for mayor. 
And uh, so you you have a lot of uh, political experience, a lot of uh, real estate experience. And I thought it would just be a, you know great to have our listeners hear your perspective on kind of this era of Boston and, and how it compares to previous eras of the city, you know, of the city. You, not that you've been around for a few hundred years, but you have been around. And uh, I thought it would be interesting. So tell us about, you know, how this era compares to others. Yeah, Boston is a very different city than it was when I was growing up in Dorchester. The reality is that in the post-war era, we were still a blue-collar city. In Lower Mills, where I grew up, people worked at Walker Baker and South Boston that work at Gillette, Jamaica Plain, they were at Plant Shoe, in uh, Charlestown, they were at HP Hood or the Navy Yard. All those folks are basically gone, and we've become a white-collar city. We've also seen significant changes in family structure. The average Boston household went from 3.1 to 1.7, 1.8 in the course of about 50, 60 years. We are a city with far fewer children. The number of children of school age is about 40% what it was 100 years ago when the population was about the same. And uh, as a result, the number of students in the public schools has gone from more or less 100,000 when I was on the city council in the early 70s to in the high 40s today. So we're a very different city. We're driven not by the four big banks, which were the biggest employers and the big insurance companies. We're driven by hospitals. We're driven by universities. The biggest employer is Mass General Hospital. And in case you haven't been to Mass General Hospital, it's busy 24-7, 365. So that requires a lot of people. I live in Jamaica Plain now, and we're within walking distance of the Longwood Medical Area. They add a thousand new employees a year. A thousand. Wow. So that's why there's traffic. And realistically speaking, those folks have to live someplace. And a lot of them live in Jamaica Plain. And guess what? Two single people making good incomes in the medical area can outbid a family with three or four children for a rental unit or for a a condo. As a result of that, we have very few families left in Jamaica Plain. And I'm not so sure that's a good thing at all. So you're, you're really talking about gentrification. It's gentrification. It's also dramatic differences in the cultural life of the neighborhood. Uh, when I moved to Jamaica Plain, 1989, there were four Catholic churches and four Catholic schools. Today, we have two Catholic churches, and they share a priest who's from Spain. That changes the dynamics of a community significantly. Uh, and the same is happening in other neighborhoods uh, as well. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, the word was in Charlestown, either you became a bank robber or a priest. That's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> but Charlestown was known for having both. But guess what? Charlestown, you can't get a shack for much less than a million dollars at this point. Sure. So dramatically different. And, and and as that often happens, and I'm a real estate lawyer, I represent people who want to build things. Sometimes the last person in decides to raise the bridge and make it tougher for everybody else. 
So you have enormous neighborhood pressures against development in many of our neighborhoods, even though the city of Boston has far fewer people today than it did for about 100 years. We were in the vicinity of 700,000 people from the turn of the century well into the middle of the century. I think we hit 801. So we have the infrastructure to be a bigger city. We have the water pipes. We have the sewage capacity. We have the streets. That's the problem one has in Arizona, for example, when they start building and they're not so sure they have enough water. We have great water. Thank the folks who created the Quabbin Reservoir about 100 years ago. And we have a very good sewage system with all the work done with the MWRA as a result of Judge Mazzoni's uh, court order, oh, now about 30, 40 years ago. So those pieces are in place. And we have a subway system which on paper should be sufficient, but let's just say it doesn't necessarily work very well. We, our subway system was the first functioning underground in America. We beat New York. Doug Most wrote the book. And it was the marvel of many of the other cities who didn't really have the wherewithal to go underground. So they did elevate it. We had an elevated that went from Forest Hills right through downtown, where there was a tunnel for a bit, out by North Station, across the Charlestown Bridge into Everett. That elevator was part of growing up in the city. We had an elevator that went on Atlantic Avenue from South Station to North Station. Well, those elevators are gone. They're still up there in New York. They're still there in Chicago. And having walked under elevated uh, train tracks and parades and otherwise, it's a depressing factor in the life of the city when things are dark and things are noisy. When my father came over from Italy in 1919, he and his mother and his grandmother and his aunt and his uncle, and perhaps some other family people I've never met, lived in a cold water flat with a toilet at the end of the hall right near the intersection of East Berkeley Street, then called Dover Street, and Washington Street in the South End, right in the, on the border of the New York streets area, which meant that my little father, he was a little boy when he came over, would hear the train every time it came to a screeching halt at Dover Street, which happened every six minutes or so, maybe hmm. even more during rush hour throughout the day. That was where they lived. So that's all behind us now. But we got to get the T to work. And that requires money and requires more people. T has 2,300 vacancies, some crazy thing like unheard of in my time how, how do you th how do you think the um the city of boston and really the the commonwealth because it to me it's a uh, it's not just the city's problem it's the commonwealth's problem is going to fix this this uh infrastructure problem this this uh, transportation issue that we have with, you know now that while the city of boston may have gotten smaller people are still coming into the city the suburbs are much larger i would imagine oh, and absolutely. so there's a there's a lot more commuting happening you know, what, what are your thoughts about that? How, how, is, how is that going to happen? Well, I think from time to time, a receivership is in order. And it may be that a receivership is necessary to basically clean out the tea from top to bottom. I'm not so sure it'll happen otherwise. And we're talking about almost military-like receivership. 
And that may be the way to deal with this. Mr. Ang seems to be a very nice man. I've met him. I've known most of the other general managers. But I know from my time in the city council that everyone goes to a groundbreaking. Everyone goes to a ribbon cutting. Nobody's there when it's time to repair. Nobody's there at two o'clock in the morning when people have to fix the tracks. As a result of which, there's not a great public sentiment to spend money to do so. We have a crisis in Boston right now. We have like 15 municipal swimming pools. Eight of them are closed. Here we are in affluent city. We're no longer a poor city. We have money from the feds. We have an extraordinary tax base. We don't have swimming pools for our kids, indoor and outdoor. Now, I've never met Josh Shapiro down in Pennsylvania, but declaring a state of emergency or whatever he did, they fixed Interstate 95 in 12 days. And yet they say it'll take us a year to fix a swimming pool. That's appalling. Yeah, we just, so what, what is, when you say receivership, does, is, is it the federal government that comes in? Who, who actually? The MBTA is an agency created pursuant to a special act of the legislature. So the state would have to come in and act as the receiver. Mm-hmm. And it would be ugly. But we might, in fact, get the trains running on time. Yeah. I'm... In my 70s, I'm disabled. I don't take the subway as much as I used to, but I still take it from time to time. And one assumes if one walks to a subway station that the train will come. Guess what? Sometimes it does not. And people are late for work and all sorts of things. Oh, it's it's terribly disruptive. It's disheartening. Um, It does affect productivity. And, you know, if we're going to be as economically vibrant as we have in the past. We've got to get people into work and we've got to get people from one side of the city to the other. You know, the, you know, not everyone can, can afford to live in, in, uh, in the back Bay and downtown Boston and, and now Jamaica Plain (laughs) (laughs) and Charlestown. Um, It's not, it's not easy. So they're coming, they're coming from elsewhere. And And commute, the commute is longer than it used to be. When I was a kid growing up in Dorchester and somebody moved to Sharon, where you live, we thought it was the end of the earth. Yeah. People used to go there to for camp. They went there. People had summer houses in Sharon. That's right. 60, 70 years ago. And now I'm, I, I do a lot of real estate work and I'm helping a very nice young man buying a house in Lemonster. Now, I've been to Lemonster. I've given speeches in Lemonster. I've campaigned in Lemonster for myself and for others. Lemonster is an hour away any way you do it. That's just that's on the that's just on the train. That's that's just on the (laughs) it's route two and it's the train. The train doesn't come that often. That means he's probably gonna drive to work. And all you need is a couple of backups in Concord. And you are there all day long. Yeah, that's a two hour an hour becomes two hours easy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so those so so those are some of the challenges um, that that we're facing as a city. Um, we've done a lot of w- wonderful things, seems to me, over the last you know th- three or four decades. Pretty amazing. You think about the when I first came to the city back, uh, started working downtown Boston back in the in the mid '80s. I was walking um, from the seaport where I parked. Uh, For cheap, it was cheap, wasn't it, Pete? It was cheap. <laughs> I think it, I think it was four or five dollars a day, yeah. and uh, and then I would walk over 
um, the elevated highway, which was the, the you know the artery. Yeah, uh, and uh, and I did that for years. And um, now the seaport is a completely different. It's a different neighborhood. It's a different city. And now the uh, you know because of the big dig. That highway above ground is now underground. Fantastic stuff going. We have that, great green space, the greenway on top. Yeah. So I, I worked with Norman Leventhal, my client, my dear friend, my fellow Dorchester Latin School brother. We worked very hard to get the business community lined up, and they got lined up. Uh, and we dug that hole, and I drive through that tunnel most every day when I come in town. Uh, and it works much better than it did. And we have all this green space on top. I wonder if some doctoral student could do an analysis of the increase in value of real estate pre and post Greenway. Hmm. The number is extraordinary. It could result in maybe five or six hundred million dollars annually to property taxes for the city. So that oh, was a great investment. I also work with Norman, who was trained as an engineer at MIT, to build the post office square park and garage, which is where I park my car today. And it's wonderful to see people using that park. They have reduced parking $9 on uh, weekends. And I came in to go to church a few Sundays ago, and I uh, parked in the garage and all these families with baby carriages because they were coming into Boston with parking at $9. They were probably going to the aquarium, going to the Greenway, whatever they're doing. They were outside. Kids were having a blast. I expect ice cream would be involved. And that's what that's when the city is vibrant. So I'm very proud of those deals. That is to me, that's just a gem in in right downtown Boston. That that whole that whole square is just wonderful. Hi, this is Catherine Broy from the Raskin Planning Group. Apologies for the interruption. Thanks so much for listening to Wealth is in the Details. We hope you're enjoying it so far. If you have any questions or would like to talk more about this topic, please visit our website at www.raskinplanning.com. Look for the podcast's show notes and connect with us via social media. Larry, what do you you see as... um you know, some, some of the most, the, the more recent challenges that we, that we face, the current challenges, you know, I'm thinking here, um, post COVID, um, you know, it seems to me that there's a lot of office space and retail space in, in downtown that, um, is underutilized. Um, the, the statistic from Collier's is that 19% of office space downtown is vacant. 19 percent. That, that does not take into account the space that's rented, but nobody's in there. And those leases will, you know, come due. People will be renting less space. Uh, we have, I think it's 89 or 91 empty storefronts downtown, including storefronts where I would go to lunch or do whatever. And uh, it's really sad because For the most part, these were small businesses. My favorite restaurant on South Street was run by the Tacciolini sisters, and they decided to retire. They owned the real estate. They rented it to somebody else. It's it's shuttered now. At least last time I looked, it shuttered. So there's a lot of heartache 
I'm a big fan of the Milk Street Cafe. Those folks have been in that building for over 40 years. Uh, Mondays and Fridays, it's mighty quiet. And they do well in the middle of the week. So we have to encourage people. Maybe we have to give people vouchers that they can come and park in any garage for $9 on a weekend. And people will come in and bring their kids. Friday's downtown is basically dead. It had been in the summer for a while. It really is now. So maybe we have to give people vouchers for Friday and see if people can come in. Friday evening apparently is active because younger single people who are a significant percentage of the population come in to get the weekend going. So, I mean, we can do a lot of things. I think we should give tax incentives for office buildings to retrofit the lower floors for dormitories and for apartments. I think we have a special crisis in terms of housing older people because so many people might know and there's no in their 70s, 80s, live in a big house. They get stairs going up, stairs going down. In some cases, they only live on one floor. They basically can't keep up with the repairs, the heating costs driving them to the poorhouse, but they don't have enough money to go to a fancy assisted living and they have too much money to qualify for a subsidized unit. So we have to create that middle. And I think a lot of older singles, especially older single people, some couples would probably jump at that opportunity. And also we have a, um, my mother would refer to it as a discombobulation of the housing market because our students are not living in student housing. When I went to Harvard, everybody lived in a dorm. I think it was like 1% who didn't. But the dormitories cannot take all the students. As a result, students, and as just like young single people, occupy housing that families lived in. And guess what? Three or four students with dad or mom paying the rent, co-signing the lease, can outbid a family for housing. Students can live in very different situations than other people. You can have dormitories where you can have shared bathrooms, shared common areas. It's much cheaper to retrofit. And, and I don't think it makes a difference if it's the colleges downtown. Northeastern could do a building. BU could do a building. BC, all their juniors are off campus and their juniors live in mostly in Brighton. BC could have a building downtown. And um, it would also give some life uh, to the downtown area on non-weekend uh, evening. I, I think that, you know the, the, one of the problems that I've heard over the years is the, the cost of development in, in, in downtown in downtown Boston, you know, all, all across the city is um, it can be so tough for developers to not only get get all the approvals they need, uh, but the the cost of, of of labor and building is so expensive downtown. Do you see any any do you have any thoughts about that? Absolutely. I mean, I've been representing developers for 40 years and I've been to every board that was ever created. Switch. I don't think I don't think I ever appeared in front of the board of examiners, but every other one, landmarks, committee, you name it. I've been to every neighborhood group in the city. I know them all. Some of them are actually nice to me <laughs> and it is brutal. And the disincentives are so great. But the real difference is, Pete, when I was a kid coming up, 
in politics. I see all these older guys smoking cigars, drinking liquor at, at, at lunch. That's how business got done. These were people who knew each other from the gym. They knew each other from college, whatever. Now, money is being invested by people with spreadsheets on their terminals. They could be sitting in Singapore or San Francisco. They don't know Boston. And they're looking for the best return on investment, which is their fiduciary obligation. And a lot of times it's not in Boston because the uh, difficulties, the obstacles to construction are so significant. That's why I think Mayor Wu has to be extra careful about the messaging. Uh, green buildings, I'm for them. It's a good thing. I have three kids. I want them to breathe clean air. But green buildings may give some people a reason to go someplace else. You're not going to see green buildings in Houston or Dallas for a while. So a lot of this is messaging. A lot of it is people at City Hall who may not have a sense of history because they're younger, they're not from here. I mean, I lived through the 70s. I was on the city council. It was brutal. It'll, you know, roll the, the streets up at night. The city was so empty. Our population, I think, bottomed out at 534,000. So we went from about 800,000 to 534 in 25 years. That's hmm. brutal. And as a result, I mean, downtown was a mess. People went to court to get their assessments reduced. The Traeger case, I had to deal with that. So it's important to have a sense of history and to understand that the world economic system is very different than it was when a couple of old tweeds were smoking cigars at some club, uh, having lunch and shaking hands and cutting a deal. Yeah, it's Mayor Wu's got some challenges, but but I think you know as as since Boston is the really the economic driver uh, of the state, at least that's that's my perspective. I think the, the, the Commonwealth has it has an issue that, that and they have to step they have to and they are I I assume, but they have to step up as well, be part of the be partners. The Commonwealth uh, understands, and I'm not sure who is smarter, Maura Healy. Or Michelle Wu, they're both very smart women. Okay. And I've been in politics long enough to know that sometimes people in power are not that smart. That doesn't mean they were bad people. They were all my friends, rest of their souls. But um, these are very smart people. And they understand that if Boston you know, rolled up the sidewalks and became one big museum, guess what? There'd be no reason to live in Sharon. There'd be no living reason to live in Winchester. There'd be no reason to live most places because we are the economic engine, I would argue, of a region that starts in Brunswick, Maine, and goes all the way into south uh, east Connecticut, all the way out to Worcester. And that's not going to change. Yeah, we're, we're you know, I, I, I think we're just so blessed to be part of this this city, this this Commonwealth, I think um, there's it's been certainly a wonderful life for me. For uh, you know, I I grew up and and uh, was born and bred and lived here my whole life. Um, with a, a, a was four four years away in Vermont, but other than that, I've been in Massachusetts, and I can't tell you how how, how blessed I feel about my experiences here, and 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 I feel like a lot of my clients have also been so lucky. 
to be to be here and and to be you know be part of this, this absolutely. Growth. And I wouldn't live anyplace else. You know, yeah, maybe in Marion in the summer. I may go to Florida a bit in the winter, but I am a Bostonian. Yeah, we're we're lucky that way. All right, gentlemen, rather- I've got I've got a question here for the two of you because you both sound like you really do love this city. In the next five years, is there one thing you hope to see happen in Boston? One thing, and I'm not talking baseball, hockey. <laughs> I was going to say the Red Sox. <laughs> I know, I know you were. Win the, win the pennant. <laughs> Seriously, is there one thing you really want to see happen in Boston? I would like to see the city become more proactive in the creation of housing. Uh, if, for example, we're building a fire station, build housing on top and give the firefighters first crack. Same with libraries, same with school buildings. The technology is there. I mean, most of our school buildings are two story buildings. We can put housing on top. Most of our libraries are one-story buildings. We can put housing on top. We have to be much more proactive. We have to keep our municipal workforce, the nurses, the teachers, the librarian, fire and police in the city. I think that's the way we do it. Peter? Yeah, and this is maybe more personal because I am a commuter into the city. Um, I think they need to... We we need to uh, fix the the infrastructure around transportation. Yeah, I think we're making we're making strides, but I think it needs to happen. It's, it needs to be a, an absolute priority for the community and the region to continue to grow. We just need public transportation. I was just um, in Europe on a, a wonderful vacation, and was you know every time I'm there, I'm blown away by the the public transportation infrastructure. It we works. May, it works. It works on time. It's clean. Um, it, it's just a. It's just a completely different. And I think we can do the same. Just a. We need. We need vision and and money. I'll. I'll I agree. Second those. Yeah. Second those. All right, Peter. Was there something else you wanted to uh, wrap up with here? Yeah. No, Larry. I. I, I so appreciate um, having gotten to know you over these years, and I, I I love your passion. I love your your expertise and your experience. It's just always. A great pleasure to to talk with you and to be with you, um, and I I know we'll we'll have the opportunity over many years to keep on doing that. That so sounds thank, fine to me, Pete. Yeah, thank you so much for for appearing on on our podcast, and um, and I'm glad that Patrice get uh, her first podcast got to be with you. Me too. My pleasure, Patrice. <laughs> me too, Larry. It was fascinating to listen to the two of you talk. Very interesting. So, Pete, how can listeners reach you if they want to talk more about this? Yeah, I think the best the best way to uh, reach me is is via my website at raskinplanning.com. Our contact information is there. Uh, so please, you know, if you if you're interested in hearing more. Uh, oh, Larry, one thing I want to just mention, and I didn't mention it earlier, was um, a great history of of not just the city, but also your life is uh is is a book you wrote and i read right. it and and uh, could you tell to tell our listeners about it and, sure and turmoil could be and our transition turmoil and transition in boston came out about 10 years ago and it is my reflections on having been in politics having dealt with the desegregation order now almost 50 years ago i've already lined up and asked to give some speeches next year so I'll be active on the lecture circuit in the 50th anniversary of DSEG. 
and sort of like what it's like to grow up in the city and go to Latin school and all those kinds of things. It was well received. Didn't make the New York Times uh, 10 bestsellers, uh, but there's always hope in the future. It, it did make the uh, Boston Racquet Club uh, uh, list of, of, of oh, great absolutely. books. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It was well received. Well received. <laughs> That's our health club. <laughs> so th- thanks, Larry. All right. And listeners, follow, subscribe to Peter's podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode like this one and share with others. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Wealth is in the Details podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corp. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Peter Raskin is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Securities offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corp., a broker-dealer, member SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Sagemark Consulting, a division of Lincoln Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Affiliates and other fine companies. Raskin Planning Group is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.